Hi, and welcome back to Activists of Tech, the Responsible Tech Podcast. Today we're talking about AI policy because 2023 was a big year for it, with AI regulation frameworks being developed all across the world and a significant event in the European Union with the EU AI Act. AI regulations aim to mitigate the harms that AI systems have on tech users and citizens. To this day, it still blows my mind that social media algorithms are left unregulated. Generally speaking, it also blows my mind that startups and big tech companies can ideate, develop, and implement harmful products with barely any legal consequences. But there is hope. This gap between tech and the rule of law is coming to an end. AI policy frameworks have been developed in the past few years and are currently being implemented in several regions of the world. I asked Mark Rodenberg to join me today to talk about AI policy and his work in not only advocating for AI policy, but also empowering the next generation of AI policy leaders. Mark is the founder and executive director of the Center for AI and Digital Policy. He is a leading expert in data protection, open government and AI policy. He has served on many international advisory panels, including the OECD AI Group of Experts. Mark, hi. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you. So let me ask you, what's your story? Well, um, many years ago, I came to Washington, D.C. Um, I just graduated college and people were interested in trying to use uh, small personal computers, which were then becoming available to uh, a lot of the NGOs in Washington. I had a little bit of background in computers. And so I spent time actually helping these organizations, environmental groups, uh, civil rights groups, uh, educational organizations use computers, but I also wanted them to understand the social implications. So we created an organization called the Public Interest Computer Association, and it was the first organization of its type in the United States. And the two goals were to help people understand computers and also to be able to assess uh, the impact. From there, how did you end up working at the intersection of policy and tech? Well, I had another great experience after I finished law school. I came back to Washington and I worked uh, for the United States Senate, and I worked on a new committee that had just been established, focused specifically on technology and law in the context of constitutional rights. And so uh, working with the senators, we helped write legislation uh, for privacy, uh, for open government, and for computer security, uh, thinking both about the relationship of, of technology and law but also with a clear commitment um, to constitutional protections. So AI policy has obviously changed over the past few years and it's been accelerating. What changes did you notice between when you first started and what you're experiencing now in AI policy? Well, it's definitely accelerating. I mean, in the early days, it felt more, um, I would say, decentralized. Um, there weren't the big tech companies that there are today. I think we had a sense that there was more control and more freedom. In the original architecture of the internet, in fact, even with personal computers, you kept your own data, you kept your own processing capability, 
and people were basically connected by wires. Um, what's happened over time, of course, is that a lot of the data and a lot of the processing capability has become uh, uh, centralized. And I've actually called this a counter-revolution because I lived through the, the positive rev revolution when computing power became available to NGOs. And then I saw over the years what happened when computing power became concentrated with, with uh, big companies and, and governments and so forth. Yeah, I'm. you just made me think about a paper I read a few weeks ago. It was published in 1991, and it talked about the potential of the internet for advertisement and how we should not let capitalism have a grasp of the internet. And then that's exactly what we did. Why do you think it happened? Well, there, there are many different reasons. I mean, of course, there have been a lot of commercial pressures that have, for example, made personal data into a commodity. And I think, you know, people are finding their data being extracted and used for purposes they did not intend. Uh, I think the United States has failed to establish necessary safeguards. Um, one of the first things I did after I left the United States Senate was to go back to the Congress and tell them you need to pass uh, more privacy laws. You know, we did a, a couple of good privacy laws a long time ago, but the technology was evolving uh, rapidly. Uh, I said, you need comprehensive privacy legislation and you also need a federal privacy agency. And it's amazing that, you know, to this day, I mean, in contrast with Canada and most every country around the world, the United States does not have a, a comprehensive privacy law. And we don't even have a privacy agency. So um, those are real concerns. Uh, and then, of course, you know, I also do believe in, in the affirmative use of technology for social benefit. Um, it's where I started trying to help people use computers and later try to promote the, the .org domain. Uh, and that was to enable the non-commercial use of the Internet, which I think for the most part has worked well. I think organizations in .org as opposed to .com uh, tend to be more respectful of, of privacy and, and fundamental rights. So maybe that's worked out okay. Speaking of fundamental rights, you created the Center for AI and Digital Policy, where you offer free training for a new generation of leaders to tackle AI policy challenges. Was there a pivotal moment that led you to create the KDP? Well, really over the last 10 years, I mean, if you if you've worked in the privacy field for a long time, you know, you begin to uh, become aware of the growing influence of AI. And even before I'd gone to law school, in fact, even before I came to Washington, I was interested in AI because I was also writing uh, computer programs for chess and backgammon. My hobby is I'm a, a chess player and uh, I was really interested in, in how to write a program to play chess, how to write a program to play backgammon. Um, in the early days, I could meet most, beat most of those programs. Nowadays, of course, they, you know, they beat us pretty quickly. But I had enough of an understanding of AI to see the difference between the early days of what we might have called rule-based expert systems. They were essentially decision trees, very transparent, very easily understood, um, and testable. And the modern AI, which is really about machine learning and statistical inference, and it's frankly just a black box, it's opaque. 
um, these systems produce very impressive results. Uh, they mimic uh, human speech, uh, human behavior. Um, but if you actually try to figure out why a particular word is placed in a sentence or why a particular image appears as it does, even the smartest AI scientists only have a rough guess. So this seems to me the new challenge. How do we understand AI? And how do we also train people with the policy expertise so that they can be effective advocates, um, so that they can be um, influential participants when the government seek public comment, and they can also help draft legislation. So all of these things together, um, I guess, contributed to the start of the center. And of course, as you know, we've been very fortunate that the people have, who have worked with us and have built the center are just a remarkable team. And um, I know we would not be at, at this moment without all of their contributions. The KDB has been doing tremendous work, not only training practitioners and students in AI policy, but also advocating to ensure that AI and digital policies promote a better society that is more fair, more just, and more accountable. What's your main focus for this year at KDP? What are you working on? Well, we see a clear need to establish uh, governance frameworks for artificial intelligence. We want to place this technology in um, uh, the larger, as you say, effort to promote democratic values and protect fundamental rights. And uh, we think we've made good progress. Uh, we've been actively involved with the OECD, which issued the AI principles, uh, the first uh, framework for the governance of AI. We worked with UNESCO. Uh, we're working uh, with the European Union. It's nearing the finish line on the AI Act. And also the Council of Europe, which is drafting the first global AI treaty. So in, in some ways, AI has moved quickly, but, but we have as well to actively participate and, and help shape these governance frameworks. And most recently, of course, in the United States, where the attention has turned uh, to uh, AI and uh, congressional hearings and opportunities uh, for KDEP to submit statements. We've done many. But I'll say, of course, you know, with the introduction of generative AI and a growing focus on existential risk, we're concerned that the, let's call it the AI safety agenda, might displace the AI fairness agenda. And while we respect uh, the concerns that those in the AI community have raised about long-term risk and the rapid increase in the ability of AI systems, we don't think that issue should be the defining issue for AI governance. We think issues related to fairness and accuracy, transparency, um, equity, all of those dimensions um, must be included in an effective governance framework. Do you think there is an underlying issue like racism, capitalism, ableism to the negative impacts of technology we're witnessing today and we, we're trying to regulate? To be certain, those are all background factors in our society today. And those are challenges we need to address and we need to fix. The risk with AI, of course, is that not only do they become amplified, but they also become more deeply embedded. You see 
in old systems for hiring, let's say, for example, where there were uh, paper records and it was actually possible through investigation to detect discrimination hiring practices, we could see the discrimination and we could look at the statistics and we could analyze the problem, we could fix the problem. Um, my concern today is that a lot of those decisions are being made in such a way that even the companies themselves aren't aware of the racism that's embedded in the services and the systems that they rely upon. And this happens a lot, for example, because we have big companies that go to third-party vendors and the vendors say, oh, you have 10,000 resumes. Uh, we'll find the 200 best applicants for you to actually interview. And so the company gives the vendor the 10,000 resumes and 200 applicants, you know, come back. But of course, in that process, a lot of decisions have been made based on, on profiles that reflect uh, bias that will be very, very difficult to detect. So on the issues that you've identified, uh, racism and, and sexism and ableism, we think the best antidote is actually transparency which is the ability to see and assess how decisions are made. And if we lose that ability, if we lose the ability to assess and then contest, which you may remember is one of the key uh, concepts we, we try to teach about AI accountability, if we lose that ability, then I think we have a real problem, you see, uh, because then the embedded discrimination occurs even without human awareness. And we, we can't let that happen. You said something earlier about AI systems mimicking human behavior, and then you mentioned generative AI. And I think it's so interesting because this year um, there was this chat GPT, I want to say hype. Well, I think we need to be we need to be a bit careful about the word hype. I mean, I certainly think it's hype in the sense that all companies with something new try to promote their new uh, thing as, you know, something remarkable. And we had this for blockchain. We had this for Web 3.0. We had this for NFTs. Um, there is, to be sure, a hype cycle. But at the same time, I think, I think we also need to be aware that many, many businesses are actually incorporating generative AI uh, products and services. And it's creating real issues for current labor, uh, for example, in the United States, we just had a big strike with the, with the writers uh, in Hollywood who became immediately aware that some of these tools could in fact replace the work that they do. So I'm actually very happy to see the organization of the writers in Hollywood. And I think they achieved a good um, outcome but the important lesson is that they did not simply dismiss generative AI as hype. They actually said, this is a real threat to us. We need to assess it. And by the way, if we can make use of it and produce a better script, you know, we'll welcome that. We're not against the technology per se, but they were very focused on seeking a labor agreement that, that would protect um, their jobs and maintain the customs of the industry. And that's the way I would prefer to think about generative AI. I think sometimes in the policy world, we get caught up a little bit in the rhetoric. And so some people say, you know, oh, that's all hype. Or other people say, well, that's not hype. I mean, 
maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Um, but I, you know, in our work, which is very much evidence-based, we actually do want to understand how is generative AI being used? What are the new risks? Where do we need the regulations? If there's a problem, let's find a solution. Speaking of solutions, I want to talk about the most major AI policy development that happened this year. Uh, it's the first global AI regulation framework to be adopted by a major standard setter, the European Union. Can you tell us more about the EU AI Act and its importance in mitigating AI harms? Right. So we're almost there. It hasn't yet been adopted. Um, there's a negotiation taking place. Well, so we're now in the fall of 2023, and this is the negotiation between the Parliament and the Council and the Commission. And there's still some areas of disagreement. But the expectation is that in the next month or two, under the Spanish presidency, uh, we will have the first comprehensive regulation uh, for AI. And to me, this is very, very encouraging. I mean, it speaks well not only of the uh, outcome, it's a smart legislation and covers a lot of ground, but it also speaks well of the vibrancy of the democratic institutions within the EU, that they could have a public debate, that they could solicit comment, and that they could produce a legislative outcome. And I will say, frankly, from the United States perspective, I'm, I'm envious, you know, <laughs> I wish I wish we could do more of that uh, in Washington. You know, legislation is, is um, necessarily imperfect, but the act of legislating, in my view, strengthens democratic societies. And when you don't have the ability to work through your political institutions, to achieve a legislative outcome, I think it's actually a, a, a warning sign. So I'm, I'm, you know, enthusiastic about the EU AI Act. I think it's likely to have an impact similar to the GDPR, which means that it will reach beyond the EU. Um, and I'm hopeful. Let's say that I'm hopeful that the United States will will move in a, in a similar direction soon. Thank you so much. You mentioned the GDPR. How do you think the GDPR compares to the EU AI Act in terms of impact? And I'm just thinking, how is the EU AI Act going to be implemented? How actionable is it? Well, of course, the GDPR is, is the privacy regulation uh, that was adopted in 2016 and built on the earlier data protection directive that actually goes back to the integration of the European Union back in 1992. Uh, what the GDPR did was to establish uh, legal standards for the collection and use of personal data. And of course, the aim was to protect the data of residents of the European Union. But because you had you know, companies all around the world, uh, in US and Latin America and Asia and elsewhere, processing data on Europeans, the practical consequence was that many of these companies outside of Europe adopted GDPR-like standards, which was a positive, actually. I mean, we talk about globalization sometimes, and we worry about, correctly, diminished uh, labor protections or environmental protections. But the GDPR actually had the opposite effect. It ratcheted up um, data protection safeguards around the world. And I think there could be a similar dynamic with the EU AI Act 
as companies outside the EU offer AI services to European citizens, I expect that they will try to comply uh, with the requirements the EU establishes. Let's move towards the solutions. You've been working towards changing, transforming the status quo through education and advocacy, and there is a lot of work left to do in AI policy considering how pervasive technology is in our lives. Do you think AI regulation is enough in order to protect citizens? I don't know if it's enough, but I do think AI regulation is necessary. So let's start, let's start there. We need absolutely legal frameworks in place to ensure uh, fairness and accountability uh, and control, by the way, because one of the issues that arises with AI is actually the, the risk of the loss of control. And so in my view, for example, if you're going to deploy an AI system, you have an absolute obligation to maintain control. And if you lose the ability to maintain control, you have an absolute obligation to simply shut down the system. That seems to me the most direct response to those who talk about um, existential risk. If it, if it really is the case that these systems that are being built are you know, super intelligent, and these companies are worried about losing control, you know, pull the plug, uh, you know, turn off the electricity. I mean, just just like stop. Um, that should be obvious. But even with the regulation in place, that's actually no guarantee uh, of safety and accountability. And the obvious reason is that laws are not self-executing. That means that you need mechanisms of, of oversight, you need implementation, uh, you need NGOs, even after laws are passed, to continue to apply pressure, to make sure the laws are enforced, and to draw attention to emerging issues that the legislators uh, might have missed. And again, to me, this is a very healthy indicator for a democratic society. The, the, you know, the parliament or the Congress can take some pride when they pass good legislation, they should also welcome the pressure to implement the legislation, as well as the advice for new amendments when they're necessary. That's what we try to promote. Um, and specifically with regard to the AI Act, one of our concerns is that there's actually a two-year period between the time, you know, this year when we hope it's adopted and when it actually goes into force. So the immediate question is during this era of rapidly evolving technology, how do we ensure that those legal standards are going to be enforced in this interim period? And we need to turn to that almost immediately. So we, we pass the good legislation and we, you know, we celebrate, we have a bit of champagne, we congratulate everybody. And then the next day we say, okay, what do we do now to make sure that these standards um, are going to be put in, in place. As you said, it's, you know, part of a collective movement. What do you think can be done on a community grassroots citizen level to help hold big tech accountable and support the AI policy advocacy work? Well, I think it's important for people certainly to be aware of these uh, new issues. I am very interested in the polling data, for example, that's being gathered on, on Americans and Canadians and Europeans and others regarding public attitudes. And what I read in the polling data 
is actually a high level of sophistication about the benefits and risks of artificial intelligence. Um, people are not against AI, um, and they're not even necessarily against AI companies, uh, but they do want these systems to be accountable. They don't want to lose their jobs. Um, they do see some ways that AI could be useful, like tackling climate change. And there are other types of AI applications like therapy that they don't think should be automated. And if you just sit down and listen to people and ask them for their opinions, I think you get uh, actually very good advice. So part of what we also try to do at, at CADEP is promote what we call these public voice opportunities. When government asks for public opinion on uh, national AI strategy or AI in healthcare or AI in labor force, um, we would strongly encourage uh, community leaders and particularly those that may have some background in digital policy to facilitate public participation, you know, create a, a, a workshop or a public meeting, uh, gather opinions. Um, as I said, I, I continue to be impressed with, with a, both the level of understanding, but also the level of concern. So in the United States, there's a group called the Pew Internet Research Group, and uh, they have been asking Americans uh, their attitudes toward AI, whether they're generally positive or generally negative. And when they asked the question first three years ago, it was a little bit more negative than it was positive. Over the last couple of years, the big tech in the U.S. has continued to expand their power and Congress has not enacted new legislation. And when Pew asked this year people in the United States how they felt about AI, it had swung decidedly negative, right? And I think this reflected the failure of the US government to enact the necessary safeguards that the public believes uh, should be established. So we need to get people involved at the community level. We need to create opportunities for meaningful public participation. And the policymakers need to listen to the people. It can't simply be the tech CEOs and, and the experts that are making the decisions. Now, looking forward, how do you see or where do you see the future of AI policy in the next few years? Well, I think the next several years are going to be uh, consequential. Um, this is a technology that is evolving um, very rapidly, and the need to establish the governance mechanisms right now is, is critical. Um, I don't think we have the opportunity uh, for delay, and when we speak to policymakers, we say to them, you don't have to get it 100% perfect. You know, if you get it 90% right, and we come back and do 10% later on, that's a great, a great success. Um, but this is not a topic where uh, time is our friend. Um, so we're going to continue to train as many people as we can, encourage as much public engagement as we can, uh, and promote as many good constructive uh, proposals as we can, because I think um, that's what's needed right now. Are you still being hopeful for the future? Oh, I think you have to be hopeful. I don't. Uh, I don't think you really have a choice on that question. So I'll always, I'll always uh, pick hopeful. Thank you so much, Mark, for being with us today. It was nice speaking with you, Melissa. Thank you.